Hello, welcome back to Kind Mind. Happy October 1st, everyone. Beautiful fall day here. I'm just going to jump right into the preface to this episode, which is about the relationship of the concept of ego and creativity. One of the predecessors of the word create is creare in Latin. This verb meant to form something out of nothing, as in the phrase creatio ex nihilo from the book of Genesis in the Bible. Accordingly, God created heaven and earth from the void. So God is the creator. And similarly, artists sometimes refer to the spark of inspiration as being in the likeness of God. And this title, God is the ego of the universe, that's not my thought. It's uh, something Carl Jung wrote in his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. And I thought it fit here because ego creativity, God is considered to be the, the creator of the universe. In that part of the book, Jung is really contending with his religious upbringing and his personal philosophical and psychological inquiry. So if you think about this, where are you in the body or are you the body? Or where is the ego in this body? Similarly, if you believe in God, where is the location of God? Is God a being in the universe or outside of the universe or simply being itself? Are you a being located maybe somewhere in the brain or simply conscious being itself? Theologians argue the universe demands a creator uh, and also different religions say there's intelligent design in nature and therefore there must be a creator or we have something and something can't come from nothing so there must be a god but that begs the question who created god and if god does not logically require a creator he she they are infinite and eternal well then why does the universe require a creator? Could the universe not be infinite and eternal? I don't know. The whole creative process, though, is about divine play, or in Indian philosophy, the leela, the fantasy, the imagination of characters, the projection of Maya or the goddess. So when people are claiming spirituality, will make you more creative. In this talk, I reflect on how that could be misguided or at least paradoxical because to be spiritual in order to be good at something or to be more creative almost automatically makes that unspiritual. Spiritual growth is cutting through illusions, not getting further lost in it. But illusion itself makes sense on some level, because what is true is always true. So why not play? Why not dream? Of course, this can also be used for harmful and destructive purposes. But in oneness, or nirvana, or cosmic consciousness, where is the creativity? Isn't that state or reality beyond or before creative and uncreative, before the Big Bang, even without a second. Unity 
consciousness doesn't have parts, right? As in Advaita or non-dual awareness in the language of awakening. In other words, the still lake is silent. A totally tranquil sea does not make waves. However, the art from us mortals is creatio ex materia. Stravinsky may have said it best with the annotation of refitting old ships. And I mentioned in this podcast that astronomer Carl Sagan once added that if you really want to bake an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. So the research question of this episode is basically, does egoism help or hinder art? Reminds me of Fernando Pessoa's obscure autobiography, The Book of Disquiet, published posthumously. The book is very strange because it was compiled from a collection of writings, and he seemed to use alter egos. So with the ego of Fernando Pessoa, he created at least two other what he called heteronyms to craft this art. Uh, Bernardo Suarez and Vicente Guedes, I think, were the heteronyms. I want to read a passage from this book, which I think kind of speaks to this gray area I'm getting at. I don't know how to feel or think or love. I'm a character in a novel as yet unwritten, hovering in the air and undone before I've even existed, amongst the dreams of someone who never quite managed to breathe life into me. I'm always thinking, always feeling, but my thoughts lack all reason, my emotions all feeling. I'm falling through a trap door, through infinite space, in a directionless, empty fall. My soul is a black maelstrom, a great madness spinning about a vacuum, the swirling of a vast ocean around a hole in the void, and in the waters, more like whirlwinds than waters, float images of all I ever saw or heard in the world, houses, faces, books, boxes, snatches of music, and fragments of voices, all caught up in a sinister, bottomless whirlpool. And I, I myself am the center that exists only because the geometry of the abyss demands it. I am the nothing around which all this spins. I exist so that it can spin. I am the center that exists only because every circle has one. End quote. So yeah, you can definitely get confused in Pessoa's writing. Interestingly, his last name, Pessoa, translates loosely as person. So he's wrestling with the idea of what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to create meaning from this, uh, this sense of centeredness or center of consciousness or center of the universe that is the ego? One of my favorite film actors is Daniel Day-Lewis. And if you've seen any of his films, he really like becomes those characters and you totally forget and may not even realize who the actor is behind the character. It's how real he makes it and how much of a method actor he is. So it's an example of how the ego of the character and almost attaching one's sense of self to that ego amplifies the creative work the diametrical relationship between commerciality and creativity and how branding 
is almost a subtle commitment to disartistry, if that's a word. Because if you're trying to make something consistently creative, like a, a particular style, uh, well, then that is also paradoxical or antithetical to novelty. A lot of perspectives to contend with here, but I hope you can do that and reflect further and welcome your feedback or corrections. Another etymological root sound of create is keres or series, C-E-R-E-S from ancient Indo-European language. The K-E-R or C-E-R means to grow, like the Roman goddess of agriculture known as Ceres. Egoism believes that the I is the origin of creative ideas and offerings, and it enjoys any credit it can get. But the spiritual attitude is more like that of a steward, tending to the growth and garden of community and nature and interdependence or mutuality. One final note that towards the end of this episode, it was interesting to revisit the thoughts I was sharing about AI and creativity because this was recorded in early 2022, so nearly two years ago and a year or so before the release of ChatGPT. It's kind of interesting to reflect on what was coming and revisit some of the ideas about creativity and the future of beauty as outlined in my TEDx talk from 2019, released in January 2020, before a lot of things changed over the last three years. So after you listen to this episode, you may also enjoy watching that TEDx talk, Beauty is in the Brain of the Beholder, or revisiting it if you'd seen it before. Thanks again for your support here. And uh, those of you on Patreon, we're getting very close to the 100th episode, and I am working on preparing a special gift for those of you supporting the show on Patreon. You can pitch in for as little as $5 a month if you enjoy this show and find it valuable and want to give back. And I look forward to connecting with you all soon. Thank you. Take care. Trying to define something is very difficult. It's, it all becomes like writing words with sparklers at 4th of July. But it's still fun. Both are fun, so I do it. And it brings people together, and that makes me happy, and it makes people happy. And so here we go, trying to define ego first. And I'll come back to why this is even relevant with creativity. It's hard to say why I picked this. I was just thinking about both, thinking about ego, which we talk about a lot in our groups, and I've spoken a lot about on the podcast. One definition is the sense of self-importance. And if we look at nature, it's difficult to find evidence that we are important or that humans are important compared to any other life. It's not like gravity treats us differently or the aging process is kinder to us. It's kinder to trees than it is to us. (laughs) If you believe that all life is important as I might, then that ends up canceling out the idea that my life is more important. So another definition would be the sense of self 
itself, or what I consider the incoherence of the I thought. That the way that we say I, I am this or I am that, it's inconsistent. I am horse today. Is that the same I when I say I will go to heaven after I die? Do I truly mean the part of me that's horse today? My vocal cords? Or will my vocal cords and the rest of this physical form go back to the earth? Or the doership that I attribute to this mysterious I? I'm doing laundry today. Is that same I that's horse the one that's washing the clothes or is the machine washing the clothes? So this inconsistency begs the question, what the hell really is the I thought? And you can never really find a location of the ego. But we continue to use I, and this illusion of an I is also that which we deem to be creative. So we all have egoism, it seems. And on the one hand, this would be necessary from an evolutionary standpoint, because if there was no sense of individuality or identity, why would a human being try to survive? If there was only the perception of interdependence and, uh, and interconnections, interrelatedness, uh, interweb of life, what makes this juncture any more important than any other one? But this inflated sense of importance is what keeps that organism providing for itself, navigating the environment in such a way that it tries to survive and propagate. And this, um, I, w- I want to say, is different than, um, than narcissism, because sometimes we conflate ego and narcissism. It could be said that narcissism is an exaggerated sense of importance. But since self-importance is already an exaggeration, to me that means we're all on the narcissism spectrum. But there's some threshold where that personality trait becomes more problematic with excessive admiration of one's physical appearance, which leads to lack of empathy, addiction to the associated fantasies. Another interesting note is that some psychologists have posited that all babies and small children are narcissists, even though it's diagnosed in adulthood. And we just grow out of it, or if we grow out of it, we don't don't grow up to be narcissists, which means our sense of self-importance or self-centeredness starts to diminish. But what's amazing about that is Picasso said, all children are artists. The problem is remaining artists in adulthood. So now we have a conundrum here. (laughs) We need some egotism to keep it going. This is what, you know, what what I'm getting at here tonight. That is this ego or this exaggeration what augments the, the creative process, the creative potential. And if we think that our work in the world to make the world more peaceful is a matter of eradicating ego, we're also going to have to live in a world then where we don't have all the shows that we love and the music that we love and the art that we love 
because so much of what we find to be creative and enjoyable is built on an untrue premise. Something like sports or film or literature is all based on a set of artificial rules that a group of people agree on, agree upon. So an artificial construct. And that's what allows us to enjoy, enjoy Monday night football last night, that everybody agrees to those rules. And ego is like that. It's all built on an illusion. But at the same time, that's what leads to so much beauty. Religion, so much of religion is based on fictitious mythology, but it's beautiful. It creates, it leads to architecture and it leads to rituals and dance and so much more. So as I've reflected on this, I think that I am okay with ego in the world. It's just a matter of protecting from narcissism and violence and things like that. But I think as one's ego diminishes, as it ought to, as Bertrand Russell described, as widening one's interests, that's how you prepare for death. By making your interests so wide, like a river that becomes a delta, that becomes an estuary, as it merges with the ocean, you can no longer really tell where the river is at some point. When you live a life like that of compassion, there's going to be less individuality. There's going to be less egoic creation, but that's okay. And, and if you are feeling that, and if you're curious about that, that's what we can explore tonight. So this definition of creativity is, is just as challenging. Psychologist John Hayes said it's the potential of persons to produce creative works, even if they have not done so yet. That's a very limited definition because you got creative in the definition. Steve Jobs said creativity is just connecting things. When you ask creative people how they did something, they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it. <laughs> they just saw something. It seemed obvious to them after a while. This is exactly what my experience has been with creativity. Everything I've ever done has just felt like a plagiarism. Even if it's something that was never expressed before in that way, it's always just a matter of connecting for me. Every song I ever wrote was just connecting rhythm that I heard from a bird with a poem that I read that day from a mystic poet. And then it's like, well, these two fit. It's like puzzle pieces and I didn't fit them. So then to sing it just, you know, it just seems, it just seems silly. And that people um, attribute the originality to you is uncomfortable. It always was for me. Uh, but in this way, I've always felt like I'm uncreative. I feel more uncreative than ever. And now, you know, people argue with me on that point. But if you think about it, and I, you know, I invite you to, to reflect on this. If you come to the Kind Mind Gathering and you say, oh, you know what, these are real, real creative experiences. Is it creative in the sense of original or origin? There's no origin to any of this. Bob and I are sharing and we're sharing from something that came before us. Bob is part of a lineage of wisdom. And I have different lineages musically and intellectually. Like Bob said, with the creatio uh, ex nihilo, creating out of nothing. How can anything originate with any human being? We're just um, 
links in a chain. But scientists, if they're going to study this, and I'm always curious, you know, about the the psychology or science of a concept and the science of creativity, you have to have some working definition. So theirs is novelty plus utility, novelty pertaining to originality, but originality has its limitation because only God, if there is God, could create something from the void. We're all creatio ex materia, meaning we're just fitting parts together, or as Stravinsky said, just refitting old ships. But one of the predecessors of this word create is creare in Latin, like how God manifested heaven and earth from the void. And this is why I said that my brother pointed this out when when he's had these moments of inspiration, that the creative process is, is like, feels something like to be in the image of the divine because you don't know how this this idea came or where it came from however the art from us mortals doesn't come from any void it's all about connecting like astronomer carl sagan's added that if you wanted to bake an apple pie from scratch you'd have to first invent the universe (laughs) but another way to think of this is that Connectivity must be meaningful in some way to the creator. And this is what all thought is. Every thought that we have is coming from our memory. And why we think about anything at all is creative. We don't always express that, but it's a potentiality. And the thought is kind of like a river. It's just flowing in us. If you become meditative or or contemplative and you close your eyes, you just notice that there's a stream of thought and whatever we consider consciousness to be is not much else other than this stream of thought because when it's totally turned off like in deep sleep or under anesthesia it doesn't really feel like that's a conscious state dreams there's consciousness in waking life we feel as though there's consciousness so it must be related to this thought This is also why humor is such a highly intelligent art form, because it's just making connections across space and time. Oh, this is ironic, given this thing. And comedians or comedic people doing this in real time is a real combination of intelligence and creativity. The scientist G. Wallace, in his book, The Art of Thought, came up with four steps to creativity in the brain. First one is preparation. It involves discovery and listening. In this first phase, the artist reflects on past experiences and any creative work that they might have previously done in order to prepare to use creativity in a new way. Second step is incubation. This involves design, And after working on a new creative project for a while, sometimes it's a good idea to take a step back and not work on it. If you're ever feeling like working on a paper or working on a painting or a design or a poem or a song, that it's getting difficult, it's fine. Sometimes if you really need an answer, it's best to just abandon it for some time. I've mentioned before that I don't edit my poems or my songs for multiple years. I get it started, I get a draft of it, 
then I leave it. And I may come back to it at some moment when there's some, uh, some inspiration, but it's usually a long time. And in this manner, I've began a correspondence with my future self. I consider it mentoring my younger self because when I sit down to edit my work, I realize everything that is wrong or incomplete. And then I, I correct it. But I correct it because I've experienced more things. I've had more time to sit with that idea, had time to see how those thoughts could play out in, in my life. But it's also given me some courage in the present moment to attempt something because I feel like my future self is my mentor and will be there to, to guide me, to correct me. And if you set up this kind of relationship with your life, you can be uh, more spontaneous. You can be more adventurous. The third step of this is what I'm getting at, the illumination step. Development and implementation. So you come back to the idea. This time you may find that the problem or the creative project clicks and the pieces of the, uh, of the original idea now come together. And finally, verification. This is the deployment or the delivery of the creativity. You're checking and seeing if this idea is actually new or any good. This may be the stage where a writer looks at the page and crumples up the paper and starts all over. There are so many times in uh, these talks, in editing these talks for the podcast months or years later, that I'm listening and I'm like, it's unusable. I've told you this before. Every single time it makes it to the, the publication on the show, seems like a miracle to me because it just seems impossible to make sense of it. And everything I do is nonlinear. It's just, for me, it's like a painting. I say something, I circle back to it. I don't follow formulas. And when I'm listening back, it just never makes any sense or I feel like I've made so many mistakes. And then I abandon it again and I come back and go, I guess I can use it, what the hell? It unfolds actively sometimes this process or passively. So the active part is when you're sculpting and sculpting and sculpting, but then this passive part when you step away. And sometimes this passive part of the creativity involves an aha moment or eureka. The eureka moment is attributed to Archimedes, a Greek mathematician and inventor. And the most famous anecdote of his life is when he was employed by King Hero to determine whether or not a crown that was a gold crown that was made from him was actually gold, or if the goldsmith deceived him and substituted some of the gold inside with silver. Now Archimedes had to figure out whether or not the crown was truly all gold without damaging the crown. And he's thinking and thinking and, and scribbling and writing ideas, trying to come up with some kind of mathematical process to this. And, and then he gets totally discouraged and, and gives up. While in the bathtub, he's noticing as he leans back the water rise and how his density of, the, of his body is offsetting the water and changing the volume in the tub. And he, he shouts Eureka, which means I got it. And in his excitement, he jumps out of the tub and supposedly he was running down the street naked 
<laughs> excited to tell the king he's figured it out. So what he needed to do is figure out the density of silver, put that in water, compare that with gold, and he determined that, lo and behold, the crown actually was made partly or mostly of silver underneath the surface. And that's where we get Eureka. In the brain, there are a couple, what's considered to be large-scale networks. There's one myth that creativity is mostly in the right brain. Now with more MRI studies, we find that creativity, what we believe to be creativity is happening all over the brain. One network is called the salience network. Salient means somehow something becomes meaningful. And what's often meaningful for an individual has to do with what is painful, has to do with survival. So this salient network is involved with the fight flight instinct. It's got parts of the deep brain that records a lot of information unconsciously. But what's interesting about the salience network is that more activity or hyperactivity of these regions is associated with autism and less activity, significantly less or damage to this, these regions of the brain are associated with types of dementia. Then we have the default mode network. We're not 100% sure if this is a real thing, but scientists and neuroscience using MRI mapping of this is trying to find out what parts of the brain are active when daydreaming. So when we're, we're not doing any, we're not actively involving our attention. But daydreaming is, is kind of like a passive phenomenon or recalling memories. And then this network applies those dreams, those memories somehow to the present moment to solve a problem. And this generates additional myths about creativity. Like does mental illness make people more creative? Because we have these profound examples of creative luminaries like Virginia Woolf, Beethoven, um, Van Gogh, right? But the psychiatrist and neuroscience researcher Nancy Andreessen has been studying creative people like Kurt Vonnegut for decades. And her work suggests that people like Van Gogh are, represent a very small percentage of both people who are creative and people with mental illness. So it may be more true to say that these were creative giants that were able to leave such monumental works of art despite their mental illness. It's hard to say. So it's worth investigating more. But from Beethoven and Sylvia Plath, poet who ended her life but was so prolific with her poetry, she was writing every single day. And she had a, an exercise that we'll do uh, later to, con to conclude this gathering, but up to more modern musicians and the 27 club of musicians who died at the age of 27, like Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, Hendrix, was it their terminal addiction and depression that created their art? Or were we just deprived of what else they could have offered the world because of their illness? But there's a strong hereditary component to both these artists' creativity and their mental illness. The box, multiple box, were prolific musicians. The Brontes, 
multiple Brontes were eminent authors, so on. Then there's a collective creativity similar to the will as described by philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, that there's some kind of force in the world, in the universe, that is developing. I had this feeling when I was a kid and I went to Chicago for the first time that this world is so creative without me. You see a skyscraper in Chicago, and especially as a small child, and you just realize you're born into an energy, a force that's greater than you. Later, I've reflected that if you took maybe a hundred humans and you separated them from civilization and you put them naked on a deserted island, how long would it be until there are skyscrapers and smartphones and internet and antibiotics and synthetic materials? Again, we have some understanding of what these things are. Like we, some of us maybe have more understanding of computer programming. Someone else has more understanding of how machines work. But who has the blueprint for everything? Right. And in this sense, this ties back to a collective ego with our collective creativity. We say we're so advanced or we might feel very advanced compared to other species. This creates the sense of importance because humans are special in that way. We're highly intelligent. But in another sense, you know, like the boy Todd looking at Chicago, I mean, how different are we from other animals because we're consuming this creativity? But cats and dogs are too. Our pets are enjoying the air conditioning and the controlled temperature and the smart homes and the prepared food and the factory mass-produced food. And they don't know how it all works, just like we don't know how it all works. We don't know how these devices all work. It takes so long for me in a forest to give you an iPhone. Probably couldn't happen in my lifetime. So does ego then impede or augment this process? But it's not good or bad. It's just illusory. Another etymological root of the word create is charis, K-E-R-E-S, or series from ancient Indo-European languages with the root sound of ker or sir, K-E-R or C-E-R or C-R-E, like in create. And it meant to grow, increase, um, recruit, to recruit means to grow the numbers, crescendo, to get louder in music, or cereal, C-E-R. But cereal comes from harvest, from the grain, which is probably why the Roman goddess of agriculture is Ceres, C-E-R-E-S. There's an anecdote from the mythology of the goddess who was a divine consort of Jupiter. They had a daughter, Persephone in Greek, but Proserpine in Roman mythology. And their daughter was abducted by the god of the underworld, Pluto. And this made Ceres so distraught that she brought a famine upon this region of Sicily where she disappeared from. Jupiter tries to rescue his daughter, and he makes this demand of Pluto with the 
assistance of Mercury. So because of their strength, Pluto agrees to return Persephone under one condition, that their daughter has not taken any food from the underworld. But she had. She had consumed some seeds of a pomegranate in his garden. And they all agreed. So Pluto explains that he cannot return her. But they come to some compromise where Persephone will return to Ceres in the summer and be with her abductor in the winter. And this became the reason mythologically that you can't grow in the winter because the goddess is, is sad and uh, everything is cold. Which is why she's also the goddess of fertility. And this word fertile is also interesting. It has roots in the sound fairy or B-H-E-R in Sanskrit, per, which meant to bear or to carry, as in carry children. This reminded me of the Fertile Crescent, which was an expression coined by archaeologist James Breasted in 1914. Because it was the birthplace of agricultural innovation in the Middle East and uh, home to some of the earliest civilizations. But none of this fertility is synonymous with productivity. So my other question is, how did creativity get hijacked by masculinity? Meaning, modern people in the capitalist world want to be creative to produce, not to offer, not to yield, not to serve necessarily, but to acquire, to acquire attention, fame, followers, wealth. That's how it's got confused. To produce, production is masculine. Output is convex, phallic. But the womb, the darkness, the earth is feminine. The stillness, the silence, the void. That's what gives birth. And giving birth is a burden. We have the psychological distancing of the joy of birth, but, but we know that it's a sacrifice. And so people, the, in, the, in the pressure to be productive in modern times, we don't always recognize that. And I think it's important to come back to that recognition of the feminine aspect of the creative process. I'm not talking about men and women. I'm talking about the energy, the spirit, spiritual part. If one was to become less egotistic, I think if I make any progress diminishing my eye sense, I feel less and less creative. But maybe it's because the mode of operation is a little bit different. The creativity becomes more like the goddess series. To grow is more like stewardship, more like a gardener or a farmer, growing community. And if you really think about, like I said before, what's creative about this stuff or the podcast, I don't really think people find the content as creative as the community, as the vitality of the offering, of the spirit behind it. At least I hope. The work when people become less egotistical is community and One's empathy is farther reaching because with less ego, there's direct experience 
of interdependence. But whatever the force of ego is creating in the world, a less egotistic person is appreciating that. Because when you have less ego, you have more feeling. You feel involved with whatever ego is creating sympathetically, meaning you feel compassion and you also feel a sense of joy with whatever beauty is manifesting because one is inseparable from mankind or nature. For the spiritual aspirant, your creativity becomes more universal, less individual reflective like a polished mirror and there's also in my experience a shift towards teaching discovering collaborating but the teaching i realized is inspired by the students there's a a percussion master named zakir hussein from india who i had the good fortune to meet on my 25th birthday i was going to see a group of jazz and Indian musicians led by British guitarist John McLaughlin. So my mom got me tickets and we went as a family because they knew I loved uh, the guitarist. And when we were heading back to the parking lot after the concert, we're walking down the side alley along the venue and John opens the side door magically and says, hey guys, you want to come in? And this was a concert with like 3,000 people in attendance. And there we were with him and Zakir Hussain, India, perhaps India's greatest percussionist, maybe greatest overall musician. His father was Alaraka, who also played tabla in Ravi Shankar's ensemble. And in that hour or so that we were there, it gave me enough to contemplate musically for a lifetime. But recently I came across a video of Zakir Hussain talking about teaching and his time with his master. And he said something really provocative that the teacher doesn't teach, the student learns. The student must inspire the teacher to teach. We have the system and that's important, right? But you can't really control whether or not the student is willing to listen. That's why it's so hard and we have so many challenges. We're doing the best and I commend every teacher and everyone who takes up teaching as a profession because you're trying to do it en masse. For wisdom to really be shared between a master and an apprentice, the student has to convince the teacher. And that's why you see the sayings, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. So it's the student's creative energy that motivates whatever, you know, the less egotistical person may have to share. And the the final thing I I want to add here is that in my uh, TED talk about creativity and um, the future of beauty, I've been curious about the role of AI because we've seen AI can now produce musical compositions that audiences cannot distinguish from other composers. In studies, people cannot differentiate between Emmy, the AI composer, and Bach. And the same is true with poetry now. And I've been asking myself, when will we get the version of this with wisdom? And um, 
and spiritual texts. Well, now it's here. Some researchers, Ian Thomas and Jasmine Wong, have worked with a program called GPT-3 in OpenAI, artificial intelligence, that's a billion-dollar funded research from a billion-dollar funded research lab, where they've uploaded all of these texts, the Bible, the Torah, the Tao Te Ching, meditations by Marcus Aurelius, the Quran, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, to Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, the poetry of Maya Angelou, songs of Leonard Cohen, and then ask the program, what makes us human? And that is the name of their book. So it's a collaboration between the AI and these two authors, which just shares the questions that they asked the program after all of those texts were uploaded. So people like me won't be necessary in the future. All I've done is connected from the small library of literature that I, I have had. We have poetry chats now where I just share the poems that have shaped my music and my philosophy. And all it is is the AI of my brain, which has a much smaller library. But there will be much larger libraries and other AI programs that we can ask questions to. And in some ways, that's all we are. You know, we're just the preliminary robots that, or AI machines. You know, our brains are just connecting these things, which ought to make us more humble. And I, in my talk, you know, I put forth these questions, but I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, there may come a time where we'll have to question what our role is, but that will be a luxury. When we get to a point where machines and AI are doing so much, we're going to have to find out what, what makes life worth living, what makes life a good life, what matters. And when we have more time, we're probably going to have more mental illness unless we understand how we create and why we create and what would it mean to be creative in a world with all these machines. Sylvia Plath has a quote, and by the way, everything in life is writable about if you have the outgoing guts to do it and the imagination to improvise. However, the worst enemy to creativity is self-doubt.